Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, David, um, Peter Sagan won, but I don't think I, I, I don't think there's much to say about that. So, is there anything else? Any other business in today's podcast? Because um, we could move on. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on a second. <laughs> Peter Sagan won. <laughs> I didn't even know ah, this. God. When did he win? <laughs> oh, I forget. <laughs> Uh, just the details. <laughs> when, no, when did it happen? Honestly, tell me. Uh, Describe to it, me what happened. Does it matter? <laughs> yeah, it does, because this means that you are not the Nostradamus no. you pretend to be. No, not even with a... Not even with a so sm- tell me, tell Not even with a small end. Uh, Peter Sagan... Walk me through it. Peter Sagan, after 74 race days since he last claimed victory in the Tour de France, has won the 75th. I think I've got my, my maths correct there. And, um, David, it was a brutal stage. They've moved, at the Giro d'Italia, they've moved up now, um, subsequent to the rest day, they've moved up into more familiar territory uh, that you'd remember having raced there from Tirreno Adriatico. So today's stage was like a stage of Tirreno Adriatico, except, for my money, it was like the worst kind of stage on Tirreno Adriatico. So um, it was it was full of nasty surprises pretty much the whole way um, until they got to this little finishing circuit where the race went up um, this uh, two kilometer climb that, that was about 18 percent within the final 20 kilometers. So that was the big finale. But ever since um, they got underway and the flag dropped, uh, it was clear that Border Hansgrohe were trying to place Sagan in the move for the day. And it took a long time for the break to go. And eventually the break went and it was, you know, in one constitution or another, it had Sagan in it. Um, and then it had slightly too many riders, got whittled down a bit, got up to about 45 seconds, the gap, and other riders in there. It's a good strong move and other riders in there included Filippo Ganna and uh, Ben Swift of Ineos, amongst other riders. Really good move. Um, and then Arno Damar, who's, of course, wearing the points jersey and really wouldn't have stood a chance on today's finish, whatever happened, decided he wasn't going to allow Sagan to get up the road. So he dedicated his entire team. The gap went out to about 45 seconds. And the closest they got, it was about three quarters of an hour of racing with FDJ, Group Armour FDJ, on the front, trying to bring this move back. De Ghent in another little group tried to get across this gap. Very nearly got there, got to within about eight seconds. They got pulled back. But Group Armour FDJ couldn't quite, get it done and they got to within about 12 seconds I think maybe maybe a little bit more than that at the closest but they were firing riders off I mean Ramon Stinkeldam just abandoned the race he was that tired and stepped off um and one by one they were just going poof, poof, poof. and then the um, Arno Demar got on the front himself and did a huge turn very effectively but it was pretty desperate stuff and it was testimony to how how committed this breakaway were and um Sagan, who was ultimately, I suppose, a problem for everybody in the breakaway, not least because had the, had the move gone all the way, which it did in the end, 
he would have won the race, which he did in the end. But also, it, it kind of his presence there threatened the very existence of the breakaway because of the way that Groupama FTJ were racing. But anyway... Were you watching this, Ned? I watched the beginning, and then I went off and had lunch with a friend. And I came back um, for the final 20 kilometres. And by this time, the gap was down to about 20 seconds. But Sagan and Ghana were still out there. And then Ghana dropped, and it, re- it ch- sort of changed itself. And then Ben Swift and, uh, and Sagan went up the climb for the first time, this climb they took on the second time. Mm. They went over the top of that climb, still with a little bit of a lead, but the GC race behind was beginning to really develop. Peo Bilbao, I mean, the GC is all over the place at the Giro d'Italia at the moment. And Peo Bilbao attacked, you know, went right up the road, nearly got across to Sagan. Um, And you're thinking, okay, next time they go up the climb, Bilbao, the pure climber, will leave them for dead. Well, Bilbao actually never got across to them. And when they got to the, the last climb... Swift and Sagan. Sagan just went, well, honestly, he might, I mean, he'd just gone so deep all stage. He just went, it is now or never. I might as well, this is 2020. This is, this is everything. I'm going to invest all my increasing form. This, this, you know, the, uh, everything that I've invested in the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, I'm going to stick into this 1.7 kilometer climb. And he's. Do you think he was thinking, I'm good. This is for Ned. I would think that if I thought for the single second that A, he knew I was, or B, that he was a petty man, right? <laughs> and I don't think he is a petty man, and I don't think he's bothered. I don't think so. I don't either, think he's no. bothered by that kind of nonsense, the froth around the event, which is all that I no. am. Yeah, so, so 100% yeah. no. He was just thinking, get it done, right? And man, he just, he cracked Bilbao, who couldn't get across to him. And Bilbao just sat up and got caught didn't sit up he just got caught he, he just bang that was nothing left and from that moment on he got over the top of this climb had about 11 kilometers to go never in doubt after that wet roads all he needed to do was stay upright and he won handsomely in the end with time to spare and, wow. and uh, honestly it was i mean it was a hun- uh, what was it a uh, t- relatively short stage about 145k i think but it was full on from start to finish sagan didn't have a single pedal stroke off today it was bang from from it was from, it was just immense it was it was saganesque it was uber saganesque it was like he'd invested all this frustration into this one race day and you know yeah. um he might go that's so, it, super cool it was it was i mean fantastic to watch it was yeah it was just everything it's everything good that you love about the guy um it, yeah. it was just all on display today so um and thank god oh. i don't have to cling on to that prognosis any longer though yeah, it's gone. It, though it lasted surprisingly long time, it really did. Um, but he blew it, he blew oh. it away today. And do you know what, David? Yeah. Just looking ahead at the Vuelta, um, you know there are only two sprinters in it really. One is Arno Demar, and he is clearly on a flat stage. He's got it over Sagan at the moment, but you know who knows where their ascending or descending spirals are right now. They've got two more flat, straightforward stages left in the Giro. But there's stage 13 and 16, so the day after tomorrow, plus a couple of days, uh, sorry, uh, nine, oh, another one. Yeah, no, 16, 13 and 16, which for all the world look like, you know, Sagan stages as well. So we're back to looking at stage profiles in road books and going, Sagan, <laughs> you know, we're back. To, we're back. He's just as if, as if that long wait for the win, I think he's yeah. just blown it all away in one, in one great day's racing. So what have you been doing? Why weren't you watching that? Uh, I've been busy, like, with 
working and doing things, trying to build my company and business and family. I'm just sitting outside. The reason for any background noise is because I'm sitting not far from my home outside from next to the car park where I dropped my son off for his mountain bike class after school uh, at a cafe. So I'm just sitting here now waiting for an hour for him to come back. And basically that's my my days. I never... And I was just actually just... As a nice little fiesta goes by. Um, I just realised we haven't had a TV at home since March. And we got one this weekend because it was a rainy weekend and we're getting into winter. We invested in a TV. So we just... I just never watch TV or even anything at home. So I guess bike racing. The only time I do that is when I'm with you, Ned. And otherwise catch up on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, the boys are still loving their mountain biking, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Well, Archie is Harvey less so. Uh, Harvey, the younger one, he he likes going uphill. As we were right, we rode to, like to yesterday, and and he stays with me. Archie's just he loves tricks. It's it's lovely. I'm living vicariously through Archibald, who's nine years old, because I take him downhill mountain biking and take him to these classes and go out and we skid around and do jumps. And it's that's my idea of bike riding. And it's such a joy. And uh, and here's a here's a nice little one, because although the bike racing after last week and we were talking about something and I went on to to watch. Uh, where was it? Matteo van der Poel was doing something again. And so we went on to, to watch it. And Archibald and Harvey, Archie already, Matteo van der Poel's a hero for him. And I just love that. that he's nine years old, knows nothing about road racing. And Matteo van der Poel's a hero for him, for him. And I'm like, awesome. So, yeah, it's good. But it, it's, such, it's a cool thing, isn't it? Because you, you started off as a mountain bike rider. But you're by no means, you know, that when you're a kid, by no means unique in, mm-hmm. that, in that sense. Peter Sagan started off yeah. you know racing mountain bikes mm. that's what he did and and the rider in later on in the podcast that we're going to hear from um who is the most recent british winner overseas of a professional bike race simon carr uh, he started off as a you know someone gave him a mountain bike yeah. when he was age 10 and said off you go and yeah. that's exactly how he got the bug as well so uh, there's clearly yeah. there's clearly something in it you know what, Ned? There's when I when we, you and I have done these talks uh, around the country and doing different things, and often in the the Q and A's after there'll be a father or a mother there that asks, um, "What do you recommend we should do with our uh, son or daughter?" Uh, and often they're really young, and I say, "Just let them have fun." Like, and that's why BMXing, mountain biking, even cyclocross, all these uh, forms of bike riding which allow you to play, is is that's what allows them to learn and develop and they they get so many skills road bikes i mean i love road racing and i love road bikes but that's something that they should get into later and let them play for as long as they can and doing jumps and and doing skids and silly crashes and going just just that's the best bit so yeah so uh, i think that's why often we're seeing all these this latest generation coming through who come from mountain biking etc because the reason they don't burn out is because they were playing for so long. And so when they did decide to put Lycra on and start racing on the road, they were they were still mentally fresh and they had this huge skill set. And so so yeah, so, so to any of any parents listening to this, don't put your kids on road bikes or Lycra uh, for <laughs> as long as you can. They'll decide. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I remember talking to Tom Pidcock and him sort of quite candidly admitting to me that it's one of the things that as he develops now over this the coming years, you know, into being a, a, a bona fide road racer with everything that that entails, um, one of the things he's really struggled with in his early years is 
the mental adjustment, the boredom of a bike race, the, the, there's not much going on. Well, you know, where's, where, how can I express myself? Where's the fun, actually? Where is, what's yeah. the point? You know, six-hour stages, really? Five-hour stages? Yeah, and and yeah. you kind of underestimate that. We don't appreciate that from the outside, have very different mentally the task in hand yeah. is between the two. And not everybody, there's no that, assumption that you can make that transition. That's really insightful, actually, because, I mean, it hats off to Tom Pidcock for recognizing that and being able to express it. Because I think for many, uh, many bike riders, that's, that's the issue, is that they get bored and they, they give up or it's just, it seems too long, they're not patient enough. Uh, and funny enough, it was what I was thinking about with our, uh, my boys yesterday when I was riding with them, is Harvey's got a very um, active brain and he just chit-chats himself and quite enjoys it because it gives him a little bit of an escape. Archibald, in the meantime, is just cruisy. So, you know, uh, it's, yeah, I, I, hats off to Pickup. That's a really good insight, and uh, probably we should pay a bit more attention to that. Indeed. Um, let's pay a little bit more attention to the Giro d'Italia. Jao Almeida, the Portuguese wonder kid from Deconic Quickstep, who's been in pink now for a good few days, is still the race leader, yeah. and he looked pretty strong today, even if his team were put under pressure and... And didn't quite respond as the, like like he may have wished them to. There, there wasn't much wrong with his defence. Um, and then there's a gap. There's a minute and one second gap to Vincenzo Nibali. And then there's uh, 14 seconds. So, th- so one fifteen then to Patrick Conrad, the Austrian climber from Border Hansgrohe. Jay Hindley, the Aussie climber from Team Sunweb, is in seventh at one nineteen. Rafa Maika is at one twenty one. Border Hansgrohe. Ninth place is Fausto Masnada, the Italian who now rides uh, for Dukernic Quickstep and is there really to support uh, Joe Almeida, but looks like a very good plan B if something goes wrong with Almeida. He's in ninth. Pernsteiner, um, the Austrian from Barry McLaren, is in tenth. Then in eleventh place, because he dropped a bit of time today, in fact, he dropped a substantial amount of time today, is Jakob Fulsang, who had a mechanical and lost, I think, a minute and a half today. And as a consequence, he's dropped to 2 minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, after Ooh. that, Zacharin is 7 seconds worse. I'm going, the reason I'm still recounting names, even though we're down to 12th position, is I think any of these riders could still win. Um, 12th mm-hmm. place, Ilnor Zacharin of CCC, 2.27. Bra- and I've got two more riders to tell you about. Brandon McNulty, who's got a great time trial on him and attacked today and took a 10 seconds back and finished second on the stage of UAE Team Emirates. He's in 13th place, but he's still only 2 minutes and 39 off the race lead and around about one and a half minutes behind Vincenzo Nibali with a good time trial in him. And then finally in 14th place, Theo Gegenhardt, who's at 2.45 and he attacked as well today. And um, Hmm. it's a bonkers race, David, because the other big bit of news today before the race that broke was that um, Jumbo Visma and Mitchelton Scott have both withdrawn the reason being Stephen... The whole team. Stephen Kreisvake tested positive for COVID today. He was their GC man. Um, they clearly saw a big risk at continuing in terms of contaminating the rest of the peloton and no, nothing to be gained in the race because their GC, hmm. their GC race was over. So they withdrew. And um, Mitchelton Scott uh, didn't start because four of their backroom staff, we know about Simon Yates having tested positive, four of their backroom staff also got it, having been in contact with Yates. Holy cow. And um, the other rider who tested positive uh, and is no longer on the race, although his team is, is Michael Matthews. Now, I suspect the reason that um, Sunweb, Michael Matthews' team, um, 
are still on the race is that Kelderman is in second place in that group of four riders at the top of the um, at the top of the GC, uh, and the way he's been racing yeah. must be one of the favourites to um, to win. But really, this is, I mean, calling this home from here is an absolute mugs game, isn't it? Because this is like no race we've ever seen, given the background noise of, of the COVID tests. Holy, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realise that was happening. I mean, that's, I tell you what, it goes to show how lucky the Tour de France was. Isn't it? Because because this seems, this is what we at least expected from the Tour de France. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's like okay. So I, I just I hope for our own sake, Ned, and this is me being totally selfish. That doesn't this doesn't compromise the Vuelta Espana. Well, every country, oh. David, has a slightly different story about what's happening with COVID rates and hospitalizations and infection rate, doesn't it? And although Italy's been um, wonderfully, Italy's, Italy's almost set the blue stand, the gold standard so far. I, I mm. do understand their cases are rising quite fast. What does occur to me is in Spain, it's a bit of a mixed picture. If you read some data, it looks pretty catastrophic. If you read other data, mm. it looks a little bit more positive. Um, if that's, that's probably the wrong word to use, but it looks a, a slightly more encouraging. Yeah. Um, but but Matt, who, Matt Rendell, our colleague who's, who lives in Madrid, was saying, and he's been back in Madrid for a couple of weeks now, he was saying, you know, lockdown, he's in total lockdown and has been for a couple of weeks. So I guess yeah. the measures in... In Spain, uh, they were more serious, and I don't know if they're more serious in Catalonia, where you are, but I think the country's more prepared it's to take quite severe action. Yeah, it's been the same here for yeah for six months, basically. It's masks everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's pretty hardcore. So I guess, it, as the old saying goes, it is what it is. Uh, it's, it's not... Yeah, everyone's doing the best they can over here, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But we don't know. It is, it is hard yeah. to concentrate solely on the racing when all this is going on but i mean today's today's actual bike race stage 10 of the of the giro was a really good tonic for all of that you know it was just absorbing for the for the for the length of time that that it lasted you couldn't take your eyes off it It was great um but it's a worry and and the vuelta well who knows um but it does i think it does encourage just really aggressive racing from no one knows how long these this bike race is going to last this is what we said about the tour de france but in the end, in that sense, it yeah. turned out to be much more conventional. But it does strike me that these, I mean, the way that, for example, Demar tried to defend that, that um, Ciclamino jersey today suggested, well, he doesn't know how long this is going to last. He doesn't want, you know, he wants to hold on to it just in case he's only got two more days of the, the race. Yeah. And um, I think we're going to see that. I just, I, just don't know, I just don't know how bike racers think because it's, it's normally, it's, it's very hard when you're a Grand Tour to to do that sort of thinking and base it on an unknown everyone and let's face it the, the old adage of recent years has been day by day so why would it change and although they may protest so now's the ultimate kind of sense check do you mean day by day or is day by day is actually future thinking so cause if it's genuinely day by day yeah you gotta go yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Because, so yeah, so it, it's all very interesting, and it's let's see what happens. Are you comfortable with it continuing yeah. at all? Because I'm now starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable with. Um, I mean, I want it to carry on because it's been so wonderful. Yeah. It's been such a great escape for all of us who like the sport. Mm. It's really been. I mean, it's been kind of an, an, yeah, an emotional yeah, support yeah. in ways which I I wouldn't have imagined before. It's been very important. You know, what I find in. Yeah, you know what I find interesting about it is, and it's, it's a good question, Ned, is because, and I was speaking to Nicole, my wife, about this today, and, and 
other things. No, and especially the way the world is, none of us ever know what's real and what's not. It, because people are saying certain things about Spain and Catalonia, where we live, and it's, it's not it's bullshit, basically, what people in the UK will say about where we live, and and vice versa, and same in Italy. And oddly, having a bike race travel around, it's like real news. We actually get to see and hear from people on the ground in different places, which otherwise we're not getting. We're getting people who are locked down in this. This is kind of, it's live real news. And so I think it's actually, and I hate to say this, it's actually quite important these things carry on, these races, because otherwise we don't know what's going on. And it's, and a lot of it is just, it's, it's impossible to know because I don't trust the internet. I don't trust, I don't, I, I'm very cautious of liking it when I'm on social these days. I'm very cautious of liking, let alone retweeting. I stick to certain news channels because people will just be putting stuff up there that could be two years old, that could be a, a video that's got no context whatsoever, that could be an opinion piece that has no f- basis in facts. And so there's something quite reassuring about a bike racing a bike race going around a a country from town to town through different regions talking to real people in real places and actually telling us what's going on there beyond actually what's going on inside the race so i think it's actually quite good that bike races are happening that was immense that was like you were standing on a table like robin williams in the dead poet society and i want to (laughs) i want to applaud you to the rafters because you've just You've encouraged me to carry on liking the, liking the rest of the season because I completely agree. Now you've put it like that, it makes real sense. There yeah. was nothing more real than Sagan's attack on that climb mm. today. It was, um, that was, that was uh, something you can grasp onto as a kind of an actual fact, yeah. the fact of Sagan. That's great. I love it. Actually happening. Actually happening. And do you yeah. know what? It's, it's, it's a place of work, isn't it? The peloton is a place of work. Like, mm. like you have... Um, you know, like I have now. Tomorrow, I've got to go to a television studio over the other side of London and commentate on a bike race. That's a place of work. And along the way, I may touch the odd thing and meet the odd person. I may, I may contract the, the virus, but and then I, I won't be able to go to work again. And why should bike racing be yeah. any different from from any other human activity? You know, I, I hope that Stephen Kreisweck and Michael Matthews and Simon Yates shrug it off, which I'm sure they will. But they're just living in the world we live in, and somehow we have to stumble on while trying to minimise risks. And one uh, group of race organisers who I think have been exemplary about minimising risks but getting the races on are the Flanders Classics group. Um, they've got two more races coming up in their calendar. One is tomorrow, it's the Scale de Prez, <clears throat> and then, of course, the Tour of Flanders on Sunday. And they've been doing this thing where they change the route every year of both these bike races... And they literally haven't been releasing that information to the public. So you get that information on a needs-to-know basis because they are... Amazing. You know what, Belgian, you know, they'll go and support any bike race in, in yeah. large numbers. They just yeah. literally don't want them there. And um, to a great ah. extent, the Belgian public has bought into that. And so, you know, races are mm-hmm. being held in a vacuum, essentially. Um, but they're going to great, uh, great lengths to, do, to, to keep that um, under wraps. Anyway, just to rattle through, last weekend, Ghent Wevelgem, David... Won by Mads Pedersen, who took fantastic advantage of the fact that uh, Mathieu van der Poel and Wat van Aert just marked each other out of the race, their first meeting in 2020. They obsessed with each other. In particular, 
Van der Poel obsessed with Van Aert and just watched that yellow jersey the entire way around. And in the end, they just collectively screwed it all up and Pedersen took, a, took an absolutely brilliant victory. And if you can watch the last an hour or so of that race, it's, um, it'll repay you. But the thing I wanted to touch on with that, Dave, David, was um, at the end of the race, Mark Cavendish gave that very emotional little... I know you don't go on uh, social yeah, media, but that. you must have seen that. He gave mm. that very short quote yeah. about this could have been my last race. As soon as I saw that, I don't know what you thought, I thought Mark hasn't thought that through. That's Mark mm. very, very exhausted and empty and quite emotional. Yeah. And it's just come out of his mouth yeah. before he's even thought it through. Is that how you yeah. thought it? Thought about it? Uh, I mean, I, I haven't actually watched. I saw the pictures and the, the massive outpouring of love, to be honest, for him. And, and respect and appreciation, which was nice. Yeah. Which is a, it's a nice little teaser of what he can expect. It's like having your a, a, a kind of a pseudo eulogy <laughs> in the sense that he got that. But I, I, I agree with you. I, I think he was tired from and he'd been in, and he'd he, been in the he breakaway. Genuinely did think it. Yeah, exactly. So I think he was just he probably genuinely when he was in the breakaway he was thinking this is this is how it's going to end. Yeah. And so and you know what maybe. That maybe he made the decision in the race that that could be it that this is it. Well, he'll stop fighting it. He's he's down on the start yeah. list to start tomorrow in the Skelder Place, which of course was his first big win back in um, mm-hmm. in two thousand and seven, wasn't it? He won the Skelder Place and then went yeah. went on to win it three or four times. Um, yeah. So, listen, I, I don't know if it's going to be his last race, but if it were to be, that might be a more fitting. A fitting end yeah. to, 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 to round things off. I don't know, but I, yeah. I'd like to think that. Let's fail. Let's. Uh, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, Ned, there is no fitting end, is there? You know, and and I guess that's the that's the hard truth of it. The the romantic, and I I I know this. I've lived through this on a much smaller scale compared to Mark. But you you, you kind of hope there's going to be a beautiful end, and ninety nine out of a hundred times for professional athletes, it's not a beautiful end. And I think it's that that realist, that kind of the reality of that's hitting home. It's that it's going to be, it's sad, and it's not going to be what perhaps he'd hoped for. And you know, so perhaps that was just him actually finally coming to terms with that Gunwevelgum. And I agree. I hope that it, it, it isn't like that, and at least he'll there'll be a little bit of ceremony to the cl- and a little bit of closure for him, rather than this. Uh, this for once for a better word <laughs> yeah 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 it's um i i kind of agree with you so that's that's to come the scale de price um and uh and there we go and the tour of flanders but there's no point in speculating about the tour de flanders because it's a million miles away it's not till sunday we'll yeah. maybe reflect on it yeah. um and then a couple of days later the vuelta starts david and literally just now an email has just landed in my inbox from the vuelta organization saying that the high-altitude finales of the Vuelta 2020 will take place without public. Access will be restricted to the public at all high-altitude finales and in some transitional mountain passes of uh, the Vuelta 2020. Well, that's ASO and everyone thinking ahead, isn't it? The race organisers and trying to do everything that they can to get this race on. Um, But before we leave Spain altogether, I had to double-check whether or not you had ever raced, David, the... um, uh, Via Franco Odisiaca, I'll say it again, Odisiaco race, the one day race in the Basque Country. That sounds Basque. It's very Basque. Uh, no, I've never, Uber yeah, I've never done, never, I think I've, I've only race, raced Bicicleta 
Basco, which a racer doesn't exist anymore. Okay. But apart from that, I never, yeah, never. Quite did. correct. You haven't raced it, according to Pro Cycling Stats mm. anyway. Um, it's existed since 1922. Um, it uh, is a race that goes out on a loop around um, this little town just south of San Sebastian called um, Ordizia. And only a tiny little place. So it's a historic race. It's been virtually uninterrupted apart from the Second World War since 1922. And just recently, it's boasted winners... Uh, like Simon Yates in 2016, Gorka Izagiri in 2010, Joaquin Rodriguez in 2007 and um, 2003, it's a long time ago, isn't it? Alejandro Valverde <laughs> as a young man riding for Kelme as he was uh, back then. Mm. But yesterday, when the Giro was resting and there were no other World Tour races on, it was the only bike race in the world. And so I paid close attention to it. And... Um, before the race started, I saw that there was a rider on the start list riding for Nippo Delco 1 Provence, uh, the, the team you know well, that used to be La Pomme Marseillaise and all that, um, uh, from Great Britain, called Simon Carr, about whom I knew nothing. And then I found out that at the Tour of Portugal recently, he'd won the white jersey and finished fourth on the Queen stage, or one of the Queen stages on stage two of that race. And I thought, oh, maybe he's quite good. So I rather sort of fancifully put online you might as well follow this guy if you're interested in this race mm. and he went and won it Brilliant. and it was a decent field as well of riders that he uh, he beat as well by far his big biggest achievement his first professional win um you are totally forgiven if you know nothing about him because frankly nobody knows anything about him except yeah. if you carry on listening after this little bit of music uh, you'll know a little bit more that's coming up but David, uh, when we go again, we'll be commentating, I would imagine, on the Vuelta and then podcasting as Revuelta every day uh, in tandem with the ITV cycling team. Yeah, we will. So, yeah, follow us on that. But we might try and sneak one more in after Flanders. Let's see, let's see if we can pre- sneak one in pre-Volta. and preve the Vuelta. Let's yeah, try. Yeah. We'll try and do that. All yeah. right. Cheers, David. All right. Bye. Well, uh, Simon Carr, it's the first time first time we've ever met. <laughs> You're sitting in uh, what looks like a very nice kitchen somewhere somewhere overseas with a map of the world behind you. Uh, where where am where are you at the moment? Have you made your way back from from your from Spain where you where you were just yesterday? Yeah, I'm just at home now, um, so wasn't too far back from the race um, yesterday, which obviously was in uh, the Basque Country in northern Spain. Um, so I'm living or I've always lived, uh, just south of Carcassonne in the Ode department of France. Fantastic. So the Pyrenees are your, the Pyrenees are your home territory there. That's your, those are your training roads, I guess. Yeah. Um, we're right in the foothills of the Pyrenees. So, um, I've got some big climbs within riding distance, like Col de Pierre, Plateau de Bay, um, but it's also perfect for training because I've got some some flatter roads down in the valley towards Carcassonne. So really lucky with that. Amazing, Simon. Well, listen, I've got so much to talk to you about, uh, not least y- your, your your victory, your first professional win. Just it Was it yesterday? I'm losing track of time. It, it was yesterday, wasn't it? Well, many congratulations. But first and foremost, Simon, I mean, we can hear it from your accent. Your name is Simon Carr. You speak beautiful English, but... Uh, Tu habites depuis toute ta vie en France, pretty much, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you, when did you move to France? Um, well, I've lived for my whole life in France. Um, my parents were already 
living pretty much full time in France before I was born. So they've been here for about 25 years. And um, they went back to the UK for my birth just because of family and um, the language, it was easier. But pretty much straight after I was born, I think within uh, a couple of months, if not weeks, I was back here and then grown up in France, um, did pretty much all my schooling apart from a couple of years at, at uni in France. Um, and yeah, from that, um, uh, basically as much French as I am British and at least I can appear French as much as I can <laughs> appear British and sound French. So pretty, pretty lucky of that, I think. A lot of people will be uh, extremely jealous of your of your upbringing, Simon, which is um, which is a, a rare privilege, isn't it, to grow up with those two cultures in your family and those two languages uh, uh, disponible to you. Um, that, that's a it's a it's a great a great advantage. But the cycling thing, I mean, you're you're only just twenty two. It's worth noting, isn't it? I think you turned twenty two in August. Is that right? Your your birthday's in August. The cycling thing, where, where does that come from? Is that something that's run in the family? Is it from your mum or your dad or, or anything like that? No, not at all. I think the closest family link to cycling is um, my dad worked in a bike shop when he was in his early teens. Other than that, <laughs> um, nothing whatsoever, really. My first uh, my first race was actually um, uh, with school. We did like a school mountain bike race and um, we had some old steel mountain bikes we used to hire out at some jeets um so I borrowed one of those and uh found I was pretty handy on some of the climbs although my bike handling was appalling um <laughs> and then from there just um one of my mates who was a cyclist in the local club at the time said I should take it up and then got in touch with a local club and started from there really and what was the local club, Simon? Who's responsible for triggering this passion in you? So the local club was the club in Lemu, and it's actually run by a Canadian guy called Chris Georges. And um, he's really experienced, especially in women's cycling. I think um, he, he used to help organise the Tour de Lode, I think, which was a big women's race back in the day. Yep. Um, and yeah, he so... I think I sent him an email and um, the, yeah, I did a ride on my mountain bike. I went out with him once and we went and did Peak de Nord, uh, which is a big local climb. And he was on his road bike and I was just trying to hang on on my mountain bike. And then uh, from there went and bought a road bike. And I think actually the first club ride I did was then up Col de Pierre, which was, I think I was about 12, um, which was pretty tough. <laughs> um so yeah from the outset I was just riding up big mountains and um there's not really much else to do around here but that's been really good for me I think wow so you were as young as 12 when you when the you got, really got bitten by the the fascination for 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 bikes I mean what um what was it back then that appealed to you so much was it the fact that you were good and that you, it was something that you felt um you know, you could really thrive at and, and fulfil your potential? Or was it something something over and above that that really kind of ticked the box for you, that, that really appealed to you? Uh, I think it was more the fact I was good. Um, I was always really competitive as a child and um, I was always good in, like, the school running races and I did some athletics before cycling, which is 
Um, although I picked up some injuries, so that's one of the reasons I started cycling as well. Um, but I think initially that was what I really liked was it was something I could win at. Um, so <laughs> that's obviously uh, the main reason to start. And then since then, I've really sort of learned to love it. Um, and especially around here, I mean, it's a perfect place for riding a bike, quiet roads, big climbs. And there's not really anything else I'd rather be doing, to be honest. Absolutely. I think a lot of a lot of our listeners can identify with that. So outline then, if you can, Simon, your your journey, because it's only been short journey, um, to, to join the professional ranks at, um, let's face it, you know, Nippo, I forget their name now, Nippo Delco 1 Provence. Is that right? Because it changes every year. I've got it right. Nippo Delco 1 Provence is, yeah, it's one of the oldest and most prestigious and well-established of the, of the French um, pro-continental teams, a really important team that you race for. Um, but describe your journey before you signed for them and, and how it all came about. Um, so really my breakthrough year in the amateur ranks in France was really 2019. Um, so just last year and I moved from my local DN1 team, which, uh, is Occitane Cycling Formation, which is, um, um, based around, around here. And, um, so moved from there, I spent two years to ABC8, which is one of the biggest DN1 teams in France. And, they had a really good calendar with lots of international races that suited me better. So we did quite a few races in Spain and a couple in Italy, as well as uh, some big mountainous races in France, like Tour de Savoie. And with that calendar, I was able to really show what I could do in the hard stage races. Um, so won a couple of stages in Spanish races. And then um, I was on the podium at uh, Tour de Savoie until the final day where I kind of uh, cracked a bit on the final day, maybe just because of, sort of inexperience. But I showed, I think I showed my potential uh, with that race. And then from there, I got a stagiaire um, opportunity with uh, what was then um, Delco Marseille-Provence um, last year. Um so started that in August and did well on the summit finish of Arctic race in Norway, um, which I think was kind of the the moment where I proved I had a place in the in the pro ranks and yeah signed signed uh, with that same team starting from the first of August this year. So I'm just looking at that. That was stage three of the Arctic race of Norway, which is a a race that does actually attract increasingly because it's an important race organised by ASO, isn't it, themselves? Um, so on that occasion, you finished, and it was a actually a rare thing for the Arctic race of Norway. It was a properly long climb to the finish line and a summit finish up to uh, Meibu, Melbu. Um, you finished in eighth place. Um, a couple of riders you beat were included... Uh, Okay, Magnus Court, Brandon McNulty, who's flying high in the Giro d'Italia right now, Enrico Gasparotto, um, and then a couple of riders just a handful of seconds ahead of you. Well, you've got a real who's who. Chris Nylands, who's an established you know, world tour rider with the Israel Cycling Academy. Lillian Kalmjan, who's from your neck of the woods, isn't he? He's a, he's a rider from the Occitanie. You probably know him very yeah, well. Yeah, he was actually in the uh, same team, in the uh, that DN1 team, 
I was wondering whether he was somebody yeah. who you'd um, you'd you, you'd got to know quite well, and uh, yeah. has he been quite an influence on you? Um, I don't actually know him that well. I've only I think I saw him. I've seen him once when we he did a pro to, uh, post tour criterium in Kiel um, that I was invited to as well, but I haven't spoken to him other than that. But I know that he was in the same team when he started out in the under twenty three ranks. So when I was in that team, a lot of the kind of um, the staff and stuff were still still talking about him when I was there. So probably gotcha, yeah. yeah. And also on that day, just to complete it, um, you know, in third place, Alexei Luxenko. <laughs> uh, stage winner on the tour this year and one of the best pros in the world and a certain Warren Bagheel finished in second place and you were only some what 30 seconds uh, behind him so um that must have been so like you say that was a real you'd already signed as a stagiaire for the team but did that get you the contracts uh, for 2020 do you think that that performance yeah I think that was really where it sealed it um uh yeah I don't I, I'm not sure if I would have got a contract without that but I definitely think that was the moment where it became certain. Um, just judging by the reaction of the other riders that were on the team, um, they were all pretty impressed with the result that I got. Um, and basically, I think I signed with the team three or four days after that. So, yeah. Fantastic. Fulfilment of a, of a dream, I would imagine, to get that first professional contract. Um so we've already answered, I guess, in the viewers' minds, or sorry, the listeners' minds. This isn't television. This is a podcast. Um, uh, we, we've answered sort of like half of the question that, you know, who are you, Simon? And that half that we've, I think, answered is you're a climber, aren't you? You are, you know, that's your identifiable specialism, which is um, quite an unusual thing for a 21, 22-year-old to know so early in their career exactly what kind of race and what kind of parkour suits you isn't it you, you've you've maybe got an advantage in that regard that you are or am I maybe misinterpreting it do you do you see yourself as a pure climber no I wouldn't say pure climber because I'm not um I'm not like one of those really small light pure climbers and actually is one of the things that uh Chris who uh the president of the first club I was in really helped me along with was the time trialing because um, mm-hmm. obviously from coming from Canada it's similar to in the UK where they had weekly time trials and that was one of the things that he got us to do um, when I was under 16 and junior was a weekly time trial and that's really unusual for France normally <laughs> French yeah. juniors would do maybe three four TTs in the year um, yeah. so i I think I could be good in stage races as well. Um, definitely in the amateur ranks, I was able to do well in TTs as well. Obviously, it's a bit different um, in the pros. The level's obviously higher and maybe I will have to specialise more towards the climbing. But for now, I'm kind of hoping that I develop those two abilities uh, simultaneously. Well, um, your 2020 then, your first professional year... Uh, started with a couple of one-day races in, uh, or, well, you didn't you didn't race pre-lockdown, but um, sort of from 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 August onwards. Um, was there a reason that you didn't? There was nothing on the program in 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 February March. Yeah, I actually signed the contract starting on the first of August, twenty twenty. So um, I was yeah. did I think I did six six races. I think it was with um, my amateur team before lockdown. 
And then, um, yeah, I had some some goals. I wanted to go back to Tour of Savoie um, with that before going pro, but obviously that sort of went out of the window with all the lockdown. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then kind of just uh, started off um, with the pros the same time as everyone else once the racing returned. Yeah, and uh, that featured the first stage race you took part in was the um, was the Copi e Bartali, the Settimana Internazionale Copi e Bartali in, in Italy. Uh, some solid results there, but they get progressively better. And then eventually um, coming around to, to, to October, sort of on the border of September and October, you took part in the in the Tour of Portugal, didn't you? Volta a Portugal. Fourth place on stage two, which was a summit finish, I think I'm right in saying, wasn't it? Another one. Yeah, that's it. That was the first summit finish of the um, of the race, um, and yeah, managed to get fourth there, which I was uh, pretty pleased with. Um, just because of the reputation of that race has been one of the toughest races to go to, mm. especially yeah. on the climbs. The level is um, supposedly really high, uh, so I wasn't really expecting to. Um, necessarily be able to challenge for for a stage win in that race and yeah in the end I did well you were seven seconds off a podium um, on on that particular occasion but I guess more significantly given what you've just told me Simon about how you see yourself you know you have the potential you see yourself developing into a GC racer um, in the years to come is you you then on the final stage produced a, a really solid it was a 17.7-kilometre time trial, wasn't it, in Lisbon? And um, you finished in a solid 24th place there, which um, gave you, I suppose, in combination with that result on stage four, the white jersey overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was quite... Uh, yeah, I was pretty pleased with that TT. Um, it was... It, yeah, it was a good test as well just to do a TT on the last day because obviously nine days racing and then a TT on the last day. Um, if I wasn't recovering well, then it could have been pretty disastrous. But in the end, I actually did better in the final day TT than I did on the first day, um, despite not really having any any easy days just because I was still in the hunt for the GC. Um, and then, yeah, got the white jersey. I was, after stage two, I was hoping to go for a high place on the overall GC. I think in the end I got 19th, but... I, I had a, a couple of, well, a couple of uh, sort of um, bits of bad luck um, when I think stage three, possibly just after the summit finish, I, I got a puncture of like five k's to go and lost a minute and a half, which put me right back down. And then I, I struggled a bit on the um, the longer summit finish on stage five, but other than that, I was I was uh, pretty pleased with the race overall. And did you, it's hard to sort of pick out just from the raw results, and it wasn't a race I managed to catch on television at all, but um, did you wear the white jersey for a prolonged spell and then lose it and get it back again, or how did it work out? No, the white jersey actually, um, I I won pretty comfortably in the end. Um, I got it on stage two, um, where I got fourth, Um, and then, yeah, held on to it. Uh, there was the second summit finish was a couple of days later. And after that, I think I had a seven minute lead. Um, oh, OK. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it was after that. I mean, that was one of the things with the final day TT is that it was 17K and the last 2K was on cobbles through you know, the, the centre of Lisbon. And um, 
we did the recon of my DS and he just said, just do the first 15k flat out and then take it easy because the only way I was going to lose the white jersey was by falling off on that last 2k of cobbles. So um, yeah, maybe I could have got a bit more out of that TT, but just to get the white jersey was the main goal from that as well. Well, terrific achievement. And then, um, and then, as you say, yesterday, the one day, one day race in the Basque Country, the Villafranca Ordiziaco Classica, um, 165.7 kilometres, Basque Country all over it, right? It's a kind of was it a circuit race with um, sort of multiple ascents of the same series of punchy climbs. Yeah, it was uh, five laps of about a 30k circuit, a bit over 30 kilometres. And um, the first three laps had one climb, um, and then for the second two laps, they added in another short little climb. That uh, so it ended up being two climbs, pretty much one after the other, both about three k, averaging six or seven percent. So sort of classic Basque country. We got some Basque weather as well. So oh, did you? Did you? Oh, <laughs> you actually have. I've seen the picture of you crossing the line. And it looks pretty bleak. I must admit. Um, but what's also noticeable from the, the still image of you actually winning the bike race, Simon, is there's no one in sight. The, um, the group who finished uh, second, third and fourth, so three riders who came to the line in a sprint uh, for second place. Well, they're good riders. They're really good riders. Um, Kyle Murphy from Rally Cycling, the American. Uh, Jefferson Cepeda from Caja Rural. And um, perhaps most significantly of all, uh, winner Anacona who is one of the top climbers in the world from Arkea Samsic, a support rider of Nairo Quintana. So that begs the question, given none of us were able to see that race live on the TV, uh, Simon, how did you get the race won? So um, it was a, the race was actually panned out a lot like an amateur race, um, just because there was never any breakaway from on about 10k. And um, it was just pretty flat out all day um and it was anyone got to the last lap i got in a in a small move with five uh, or five of us in total um anacona actually was in that move as well on their penultimate climb um and then we actually got brought back between the two climbs and then pretty much straight away got away in a another move with seven riders um uh, so we got onto the final climb of group of seven. Um, Anacona attacked from the bottom, um, and we ended up four of us um, about halfway up that climb. Um, and uh, so him and Sipada, I think they attacked maybe two or three times each, and I was just waiting for the right moment to attack. Um, close enough to the to the top that I could um get a good see it through see it through all exactly. the way to the end yeah yeah yep. get a get a big enough a big enough lead for the descent but also um not yeah also not go too early so in the end I attacked about seven eight hundred meters from the summit um and went over the top of a 12 or 13 second lead um the descent was quite technical and wet so did that as fast as um I well not exactly as fast as I could because I didn't really want to take too many risks but obviously 10 second gap I had to take a few um and then from there um it was about 12k from the summit so it was basically just like a time trial the final bit and Riv 3k's to go um my DS said on the radio I had 30 seconds so 
from there um just again not take too many risks um with the final running through the town in the wet um and yeah had a bit of time to to savor the victory well what a moment i mean had you really expected at the start line that uh that this was a winnable race for you not not really no i mean obviously as a rider you always hope for the best um and i i I knew that I had the potential to win races like that, um, but obviously to do it so soon in my pro career and also just because you've you've got to have the right race come together and then you've got to have a bit of luck as well, obviously. Um, so, yeah, it was quite surprising, but a good surprise. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. Well, I mean, it's a handsome victory and... Um... It was strange, wasn't it? Because um, I was scrabbling around sitting at my desk that you can see on this Zoom call here in London. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Because there's no Giro d'Italia. There are no Belgian one day races to watch. You know, there's no world champion. We've been so spoiled as cycling fans for something to watch. And then I thought there's got to be something on the programme. And your race just popped out of nowhere. Um, So I I kind of drew attention to it in a little interview you'd done. And boom, you go and win the damn thing. Um, but that's definitely it, Simon. Is that your last race on the programme for 2020? Yeah, for 2020, that's it. Um, we've, the uh, team aren't invited to the Vuelta, are they, no? No, 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 no. No, okay. no Grand Tour invite. Um, I think they're, they're looking for a Grand Tour invite for next year, possibly, which would be which would be amazing if they get that. And then um, mm. hopefully some World Tour races, some smaller World Tour races like Paris-Nice, I think, um, yep. should be on the cards. Um so aim for those, but otherwise the next sort of um, um, the next time we get together as a team is at the end of the month. We've got a, a small camp just to prepare for next year, but probably just a bit of a uh, bit of rest before then. Fantastic, and, and you're contracted up for another year, or does it extend beyond that, or you've certainly got next year? Mm-hmm. Um, another two two years, so twenty one yep. and twenty two. Wow. Well, that's some. Um... I mean, that's a tremendous reassurance, I guess, as you sort of look to, to to build your career. And just going back to the nationality thing, Simon, I mean, I suppose you're very used to being referred to as Simon Carr by uh, race announcers all the way around France. But uh, do, you, do you, so you race on, the, on a British racing licence. Um, but uh, what's your nationality when you check in and out of, you know, your Ryanair flights across Europe? Which passport do you put down on the uh, on the counter? Right, at the moment, I've only got a British passport. Um, so I've actually, I applied for French nationality once I was 18. Um, well, dual nationality. Um, and um, yeah, that that process is still sort of ongoing. Hopefully it's going to come through soon. Um, but then it's really, it's impossible to say if I'm British or French. I think I'm probably good example of um sort of a, a european basically um because <laughs> yeah um I, i'm as much french as i am as i am british i think and what does your heart tell you simon or does it not matter what your heart says i mean you know would you would you be happy uh racing as a british racer but you live in france and you you know you're you're probably more french in, in a way would it would it matter you to you maybe one day to race as a french as a french rider no it wouldn't really yeah in terms of I don't think it it really matters to me one way or the other 
more in terms of the racing. Um, definitely, I, I really wanted to get the the dual nationality just to kind of cement that fact that I am um, as much French as I am British. But completely um, understandable. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't really um, haven't got an allegiance more one way than the other. Um, you know, maybe ultimately I, it might depend on what opportunities I get just in terms of the cycling um, from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, but, I was I was going to say, yeah. you, you know, Simon, um, it's nothing like what, um, you know, your background is, but you, you consider the decision that Chris Froome had to make very early on in his career where essentially he wasn't being supported by the Kenyan Federation, which basically didn't exist. And so for very good and understandable reasons, he had to he had to choose to be a British uh, racer and and he drew some benefit down from that whereas you know you've got <laughs> you've got two kind of quite big players that you could potentially you know if, if your career progresses as we all hope it does Simon and you know you're, you're eventually maybe uh, under consideration by the national programs um, you know there's they're two very different cycling cultures but they're two very impressive cycling cultures aren't they and that, that might be a kind of difficult sporting cultural choice to make uh, further down the line perhaps yeah definitely I think um, I mean obviously yeah, there's a couple of examples of riders that have um, switched nations for various reasons and obviously sometimes that was because it's easier to be selected for one country than another but obviously with France and Britain um, whichever whichever country you're looking for selection for, it's going to be really tough and you're going to have to be one of the best riders in the world. So it's not really um, a particular advantage um, to being, to trying to be selected for one country than the other. Yeah. And as far as the British cycling hierarchy and establishment goes, how much contact have you had with the kind of British cycling scene down the years? You know, have... Have have British Cycling ever been in touch to find out who you are and what you're all about, for example? Or, you know, have some of the, the British teams ever expressed an interest or tapped you on the shoulder? I mean, it's not, I know you've not been a pro for very long, but um, what's that contact been like or has it been fairly non-existent? Mm, I didn't really have any contact um, to for, yeah, the first the first years of my career. I think um, the, or the only race I did in the UK was I did the Junior Tour of Wales when I was first year junior. Um, but I didn't really do that well there. Um, and then I've had some, some contact from British cycling, um, in the last sort of couple of years. Um, but I mean, especially this year with all the under 23 races being cancelled, like the world's sure. and Tour de l'Avenir, um, sure. there hasn't really been able to, to take advantage of any opportunities from that side. Um, so yeah, um, Hopefully, in the future, I'll be able to to get some national selections. But at the moment, I think I have kind of flown under the radar of both, just because maybe the French imagine that I'm British, and then maybe the British um, Federation um, either haven't seen my results just because I was in France, or um, maybe initially thought I I was sort of French. So. Um, as a junior and stuff, I never had any contact with them just in the last couple of years. Fascinating. Well, I mean, you know, you've got, in many ways, you've got the best of both worlds lying ahead of you. And um, uh, what a terrific way to round off 2020. Which which race, if you could just pick out one race from your expected race programme or your 
race program you you hope for in 2021 what would it be what would you say i'm really looking forward to that race more than any other um, i think it would really be paris nice just because um i i really want to try and make that step up um to performing in the biggest races possible and um that's one of the world tour races that um my team normally do um so having won a race now at a kind of lower professional level although I think it's still a reasonably big race um uh yeah I I really want to make that step up so probably Paris-Nice. Fantastic well um that's a race that David and I commentate on every year, so um, I'll be looking forward to <laughs> Simon Carr. I'll give it the whole French. I'll give it the French twist, just to uh, just to just to make it appropriate. Um, excellent. Did you win anything ridiculous on the podium? By the way, you did. Did they put, place a Basque hat on you or anything, or did they give you a local a local cheese or anything? What did you get? What did you come away with? Yeah, I got a I got a Basque hat. Um, brilliant, so, brilliant. Yeah, that's um, probably not one I'll be wearing out, but. Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> Yeah, nice thing to have, I guess. Yeah, well, just as nice as the actual victory itself. Um, Simon, I have to confess, two days ago I had no idea who you were, and now, and now I've got a very good idea. So um, I'm going to keep my eye on you, and I think everyone listening will um, will be keeping their ears out and their eyes peeled to see how it all goes next year. Uh, God willing, the damn virus disappears and we get a full race program, and um, and we can we'll see you in action. Take care, Simon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 